HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Okay, welcome back to the Good Food Mercantile in San Francisco. We are live here at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm David Tadashore, again, the lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and it is my pleasure to introduce some of our very own hosts here at the Mercantile. We have uh, Harry Rosenblum of Feast Your Ears, who you heard from earlier, along with Michael Harlan Turkel of the Food Scene, and they are going to be joining forces right now for... Uh, a mashup show, uh, tentatively titled Feast Your Scene, but I'll leave that to you guys to, to decide. So welcome. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Nice, nice to be back in this uh, mobile version of the Heritage Radio studio. It's yeah. not, you know, we're not in a shipping container, so I'm a little bit thrown off. Yeah. It's, it's slightly more claustrophobic. Yeah, but you can still hear the roar of the crowd. It, it's just as fervent as people eating pizza, I yeah. believe. It's reminiscent. Yeah. Well... Harry's done this before, not not the radio thing per se, but he's been to the Good Food Awards. So I'm still a little bit shell-shocked about what this is in the best of ways. Um, it's such an overwhelmingly awesome community. And being at the awards last night uh, in a room of you know, almost 1,000 strong, standing up at the end, uh, holding posters together with a unified message, just, I mean, I'm still shaking a little bit. Um, it really, I mean, it, you know, earlier I interviewed Richard Tarlov, who owns Canyon Market, and that was the thing that we both touched on, is that it, it is nice to sort of come back to this on a yearly basis for us as retailers. And, and a, n- a number of the other retailers that we met with this morning, we had a meeting of the Good Food Retailers Collaborative, touched on the, that, that, you know, it is nice to become re-energized mm-hmm. about food and about the good food you know, the work of the Good Food Foundation and the work of the Good Food Awards. Yeah, and I know it's a lot of retailers here, and, you know, I have a media pin on. You, you wear many a hats here. And, you know, in, in essence, we are selling food to each other. Sure. But we are sharing free ideologies, and th- that's what was kind of amazing. You can sit and hear people talk about their stories, and that information is, is pro bono. Right. And, and can disseminate without... You know, having a storefront, uh, I always call it mortar and pestle, but I know it's a brick and mortar. Um, <laughs> well, you can have brick and mortar yeah, and pestle. Yeah, all three. brick and mortar and pestle. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, as, as a retailer, say it's a product you won't necessarily, um, you know, have in your store. What, what is the message? What is the overarching message of a company that you're hoping to, you know, 
grace your shelves? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. You know, we obviously do a lot of work at the Brooklyn Kitchen and a lot of the other retailers who are here, um, to a greater or lesser extent, do a lot of work to support the producer and to tell the story of the producer, the where the food is coming from, and not just that it comes from California or it comes from Georgia, but like really where it comes from. Like, what's the color of the soil? What are the names of the people who make the food or plant the seeds or harvest the product? And I think that that's what it that's what it really comes down to and like you mentioned it's about those stories and it's about that connection between people food is a connection between people right it has to get made by someone i mean of course sure foraged berries foraged mushrooms that's not a connection between people necessarily but for the most part the way food exists currently somebody is making the food that they're handing to you that you're going to eat and that is a connection between people so for us, I think it's about really celebrating that and understanding that it's not just about selling a bottle of, you know, a bottle of hot sauce or a jar of jam or a bottle of olive oil. Those things are fine, right? And, and we hope that people will come to us. We believe we have great quality products and that we tell the stories of these people. But there are vendors here. Hex Ferments is one that we were both yes, just talking about. We, we, we tasted it apart, and then we came together and agreed how kind of awesome. And, yeah. and, and Hex Ferments is a company yeah. based outside of D.C. and Maryland. They, uh, are, you know, they have a number of products. They won an award last night for their miso kimchi. It's a fantastic product. Right now, I asked them. I said, oh, I'd love to have this at our store. They don't have any distribution outside of their own local area. So how do we work with them to support that? Well, there's a couple of ways. We can figure out very complicated logistics. Uh, you know, my first question to you was, do you know anyone who travels between New York and D.C. <laughs> yeah. regularly? So, like, can we have, like, an underground <laughs> kimchi railroad, yeah. right? Do you have a mule? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, we need a kimchi mule yeah. <laughs> to bring us kimchi from, from other places, which is, which is a viable option. We operate that way with a lot of our products. I mean, we have products that come into, you know, come to us from Japan and, and other places in the, in the States in that same sort of way. Another way to work with them, and I think actually perhaps a more effective one, is to share with others who maybe are in their area who couldn't come to this show in San Francisco, hey, this is a product that we loved. Mm -hmm. You're nearby. You should be selling it. I mean, that's inevitably what Good Food Awards does. It, yep. it, it kind of gives a registrar of who they collectively think right. you know, should be on shelves around yeah. the country. And then, you know, I mean, we're lucky in New York that we have a powerful market, right? It, we're not, you know, the, the market in New York for a product like theirs is not just the Brooklyn Kitchen. There's a couple dozen places potentially that would probably stock that product. So I think the other thing that we can do is say, well, why don't you bring all your products to New York for a weekend and we'll have a pop-up. Mm -hmm. They have a retail space already. Uh, and come and have a pop-up within the Brooklyn Kitchen and bring all of your SKUs and talk to my customers about it and talk to other people about it and let people know in the New York area that have been asking about your product. They can come and see you here and taste your product and use that as a podium to talk about your product and to launch it. And then perhaps if there's enough groundswell, it's not worth it for them to figure out distribution to New York if I'm going to buy one case every couple of yeah. weeks. Well, I mean, I, I come from you know the, the visual aspect of things and you know, if, if you don't have the benefit of FaceTime, you know, uh, or uh, being able to interact with the vendor itself, what do you do with shelf space and signage to encourage somebody to try a product? This was a this was a something that came up this morning um, with a couple of other retailers, and we were talking about signage as something that is super important, but also often not done super well. And it's hard from a retail perspective because if you go, you know, the one route you could go as a small specialty food retailer is to say, great, every single vendor, send me your signage. 
and then you have different sizes and you have different you know, colors and you have different layouts and you're trying to fit it all in and it may not work with your shelving and then you end up, I mean, it, you know, it's sort of a visual like attack almost. Mm-hmm. The other route is to go somewhere like, you know, the, the complete opposite of that is a place like Zangerman's in Ann Arbor where like all the signs are handwritten in the same handwritten font which I have a great deal of respect for. Like, it's, it's incredible. They have, a, they have it down to a science, really. Um, and I think the, you know, for me, I think the, there's a happy medium in the middle there somewhere of going to, a, going to a vendor and saying, here's our size. We prefer a shelf talker that is two inches by four inches because it fits with, our, with what we do. And here's the information we want on it. Well, you know me, uh... We're going to jump to Sumo Stew, an event that you and I produced together. Um, And when we produced this event, you know, I'm still blown away that we did two of them here in San Francisco. I mean, we've had a pretty incredible couple of days here in San Francisco, right? I mean, we did two days of Sumo Stew and then going right into last night, the Good Food Awards, which was amazing. I'm, I'm literally running on that energy where you're just excited about things and you're inspired. But, you know, what Sumo is, is is a very modular event. We, We kind of fit the whole idea within the bento box and you know it all started when i went to japan the first time um i was so enamored by bento boxes because they're almost standardized and so is shelf space and like how do you differentiate uh regionally there are different papers and colors but everything is within the same scale um and it kind of blew my mind that you can have so much diversity within that scale uh but everything fit perfectly you know on those shelves so right. that, that, right. that was the continuity there. Then you come back to the U.S. and, you know, you see your store versus Byright versus Zingerman's. And where is the common threads? Uh, I know there's a lot in ideology, but where's the common thread in how you display an item? Wow, that's... Uh, that was a big that's and a loaded big, question. It's yeah. a big loaded question. I, I think that the... The best way that I can describe it is that we're all after the, a common goal, right? That we, we all want to present products that, in a way that does justice to the product. We want to present products that are a quality purchase for the consumer. And we want the consumer to have an understanding of what they're buying. Now, that can, you know, that also has a, it's a huge spectrum. None of this is sort of black and white or A and B. You know, it's a huge spectrum. You might have a customer that really wants to understand what the varietal of olive oil is. You might also then have a customer whose, you know, wife, husband, partner, you know, brother, whoever said, go to the store and buy olive oil because we're out. Mm -hmm. And they may not care which olive oil it is. They walk in your store. The first one they see, it says olive oil on the bottle. That's the one they're going to buy. So, you know, and, and all of those people are coming to you for the right reasons. They just might be different. I think as far as how do you display those products, I think that, you know, you need to be, you need to be honest about what the product is um, and you need to provide it to people um, in a way that's easy for them to, to shop it. I think those are kind of the, the most basic things about it. Um, obviously, there's lots and lots of time and energy that has been spent studying how to merchandise. And eye level is better than, you know, below the belt line or above the top of the head. You know, size of packaging makes a difference. How big are your letters? Whether or not you use a sans serif font. You know, there's, you know, thousands of pages have been written about all of those things. Yeah. But I don't think that those are a common thread between our stores. Yeah. You know, so what's drawn you in both visually and in 
you know, palette-wise at the Mercantile today? Uh, I mean, I've definitely I've seen I've seen some products that uh, you know packaging is a, is a big one. I mean, if we're going to talk about merchandising and packaging, I mean that's the messaging, right? Forget a shelf talker. The messaging is the label. And so, you know, oftentimes label designs don't do justice to the product. They either cover too much of the vessel, so you can't tell what's in the jar, um, or they're trying to, trying to tell too much of a story. I mean, you know, people don't want to read a paragraph. They want to look at a thing and know what it is and, you know, have it be visually appealing. Some of the best packaging also on something that was delicious that I tasted was pickled blueberries, Oh, there are yes. pickled blueberries there from a, a farm called Bow Hill in Washington. Um, their packaging is very simple. It's a graduated blue label um, that is visually appealing. It's a sans serif, you know, all uh, uppercase lettered font. It's very easy to read. Um, and it's a, you know, it it's eye-catching, and the, uh, the pickled blueberries were also tongue-catching. Yeah, yeah, and transparency, both in... You know, the translucency of the bottle. Sure. As and, it's well made, as the and it's made at their farm where they grow the product. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had a discussion, perhaps you'd like to elaborate, um, about sort of, you know, sometimes you end up with products, and, and this came up actually in the conversation earlier with Richard, about people who are growing the product that they are then making into something else and presenting here. So you have like Oliver Farms who, you know, they grow the peanuts and the bene that they then press to make into the oil versus someone who is... I mean, doing great work and supporting people, but like a chocolate maker or a coffee maker, you know, the, that coffee roaster who has incredible coffee down there that won for their coffee, they didn't grow the beans. Yeah, that was the most interesting thing that came up. I think Sam from Byright said, you know, the oil category is, is farmers as well as producers. So they get to see that whole cycle. Um, but they also get to suffer through the, that economic cycle, too, whereas, you know, coffee and chocolate makers get to, you know, work and collaborate with these, uh, you know, companies in Ethiopia and Costa Rica. Um, and if something were ever to happen with whoever they worked with, they could shift their business because, yeah. you know, th- there are other places to buy from. But when you're your own business in, in its entirety, that's that's scary as hell. Yeah, it is. At the same time, it also is born somewhat of necessity, right? I mean, if you look at someone like, I'm sure, at, you know, Bow Hill, I would, you know, they probably started making these value-added products not because they needed something else to do, but because they had berries they couldn't sell fresh. I'm sure they do a huge business in fresh berries, but, you know, they didn't need the extra work of turning some of it into blueberry powder. But if you, you know, if you are running a good business and you're watching something rot, you know, you don't want to have that waste, so you make it into something else you can market. That, that always impresses me where there's, you know, the main product and then there's secondary and tertiary. Um, and, you know, even extended far past that, and uh, I believe he's going to be a guest on this show or on the station soon, regrain, someone who's making, yeah. you know, bars out of spent grain from breweries. Yep. Um, and more and more I'm seeing, not only at the Good Food Awards, but on shelves, people repurposing products that, didn't have a purpose before. Right. Sure. I mean, as, as vinegar makers, both, (laughs) um, you know, we were, we were talking about using banana skins, which is a, you know, which is essentially a waste product. Um, you know, I've made great vinegars out of, you know, apple peels from when I've peeled apples to make pie. Um, you know, and, and these are opportunities both in terms of just, you know, not throwing something away and be able to make something for yourself. Um, but then, you know, there is an industrial and a, and a, a small business opportunity there in many cases. 
I think about sustainability um, in the chocolate industry, uh, which, which seems like an odd thing to say. You know, a lot of people think that chocolate just gets processed, conched, and made into bars, and there isn't much waste within that. But uh, I was talking to somebody about uh, cocoa powder um, and Dutch double-processed cocoa powder at that and how there's such an absurd surplus of, of that powder. Huh. Um, I actually don't even know how it's made. Yeah, I, well, I know it's double-processed, but I don't know what the first process is. <laughs> Um, but that there's such a surplus of that um, that it goes in, a, I guess, milk chocolate bars, and they don't usually do dark chocolate bars because they have this surplus of this cocoa powder that can easily be blended into a, you know, a much lower uh, percentage cacao. Um, and that's why people go to places like Switzerland for milk chocolate, not necessarily dark chocolate. But as someone who's in the market, do you see these shifts in the economy and shifts in, 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 in product regionally, or is it dark chocolate across this country? Is it a specific type of coffee across this country? Um, or do you see, you know, Northeast versus Southwest uh, dealing with different things because of how things get imported and, 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 and used? Um, you know, that, that may be there. It's not something that I personally have taken notice of. I, I always find it interesting, the segmentation of a lot of these food production um, sort of things regionally. Um, but I haven't actually, I haven't examined it, especially with things like chocolate and coffee, right? Obviously, you know, it's very different. I mean, like, the, you know, peanut oil. There aren't any peanut farms in the Northeast. There aren't any peanut farms in the Southwest. It would be really odd to me if suddenly there was, like, someone selling peanut oil that was coming out of Arizona. Yeah. Whereas we don't think twice about there being a coffee or a chocolate. Everywhere around the country. Everywhere around the country because that artisan is working in a different way. Yeah. They're, as we talked about, getting their product, and then they are processing it and blending it, and their their craft with that product is at a different point in the process. It's not with the, it's not with the growing. So, you know, I think it, I think it's, it's fascinating that there is opportunity for these things everywhere, right? You could, you could have a kimchi maker. I mean, if they wanted to grow their own cabbage, you know, that can't happen everywhere, but you could have a kimchi maker anywhere in the country. Vinegar, you know, and that's what's been so interesting. Vinegar can be almost considered a byproduct sometimes, you know, it's, it's bad or sour wine, but it, we, we both know it and adore it as, as, a product in it of itself. As its own sublime elixir. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, nor- Northwest, you have tons of apples, and there should be more apple cider vinegar makers. Or, you know, down in Florida, where there's wonderful citrus, there should be more citrus vinegars. And why isn't that happening? That, that's a big burning question I think both of us ask each other all the time. Yeah, I, you know, it's uh, perhaps that maybe there's, a, maybe there's an opportunity for some kind of a call to action. I mean, you know, one of the things last night that uh, that Ron Finley said, you know, he looked out into this crowd, which, you know, I mean, look, happy to admit, like, you know, we're not trying to hide anything. Like, it's a really white world, this world of specialty food at the moment, right? Yeah. You know, it, and, and there are certain categories that are very male-dominated. Um, and he looked out and he said, where are the black cheesemakers? And so perhaps there is an opportunity for a call to action, not just in terms of celebrating or encouraging diversity in the marketplace, but also in terms of products. You know, perhaps we are in a position to say, look, there is buying power out there, right? I mean, because all of this, it, 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 some, to some extent, can boil down to economics. We, we could be in a position to say, look, you know, I, I will put a citrus, citrus vinegar on my shelf. Where is it? You know? 
call out to people and say, look, you want to, you know, you want to start a business, you want, you know, in, in, you know, you want to create jobs in Florida, somebody make some vinegar and then we'll sell it. So why hasn't that been done? Why haven't a consortium of marketplaces and vendors put up a list of wants and needs and then people, you know, reacted to that because i think that that's you know because i think we're, we're treading new ground here yeah. um i think that that's a i will bring that idea back to the good food retailers collaborative we in, at our meeting this morning we talked about the buying power we have as a group and that's really strong and so if the 21 companies which represents more than 21 stores some of the companies have multiple locations can go to a group and say we will buy this that represents a real opportunity, whereas what the way that the food and especially the small-scale artisan production has worked up till now has been it's based on the wants of the producer. The producer kind of, you know, to a, to a large extent, it's been dictated by, oh, you know, I mean, this is sort of silly, but like, oh, you know, I make great granola. I'm going to quit my job on Wall Street and I'm going to start a granola company because my granola is great, not because there's a market out there that's crying out and saying we want more granola on the shelves. Yeah, or we need more granola, or that, that's going to satiate you know, some kind of demographic that doesn't have enough granola in their life. Right. So, you know, I mean, I, th- I think we are in a, in a unique new position to perhaps do that. And as, as retailers, we could be putting out, you know, much the same way that Pantone says what their, like, color is going to be for 2017, which as a total, as a tangent, isn't it? It's like somehow cannabis related, right? Isn't it like weed green or something? I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, for 2017. We are in San Francisco. Exactly. So. Um, but we are in a position where that could start to be something that we do, where we say, okay, you know, Here's this incredible marketplace. What, we, what we're not seeing is citrus vinegar. You know, Southern California and Florida, let's, you know, step it up. Let's get some citrus vinegar. You know, we are part of the biggest industry in the world, which is food. Um, and it's constantly expanding, and there's plenty of space for it. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like if you do have that ambition and dream, there are plenty of places that will listen, watch your path, and support you, so might as well do it. But I want to go back to your point about how, you know, there maybe aren't enough black cheese makers. The one fascinating thing I think I've, I've thought about, uh, you know, radio, is how faceless we are. That we get to speak on all these, uh, you know, different topics and levels, and maybe you can tell, you know, I, I am an Ashkenazi Jew from Brooklyn by my voice. Uh, but maybe you can't. And I think that's what's been so powerful about being at Heritage is that we get to, you know, think about these things, talk about these things, and people don't have to see us. They, they can just hear us. So it, it's making me realize, being here amongst this crowd, how big a voice is, too. You know, yes, I'm going, and I'm going to march in a couple hours. But you can also be on the airwaves, uh, be on social media, and uh, that could have a wonderful ripple effect, too. And you can support these producers and, you know, vote with your dollars to support them and their families and their communities. Because that's really, I mean, we're talking about, you know, work that's happening on the ground, literally and figuratively and in the ground in some cases. Great. Well, thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) This is a great mashup of uh, the food scene and feast your ears uh, and definitely appreciate your perspective on what's happening here at the Good Food Awards and in the good food movement as a whole. Um, so, Michael, i got to ask, where are you going to, to March? What's the, uh, 
wherever there are the most women. <laughs> <laughs> well done. That, that that was a terrible response. But no, I mean it's <laughs> it's it's all over, all over San Francisco oh, yeah. right now. City, okay. uh, you know, Civic Center and um, wherever I can show my support. That's, okay, great. All right. Well, thanks again, guys. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back live at the Good Food Mercantile in San Francisco. Stay tuned in to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. dot org.